Welcome to Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Weissman. And in the past several weeks, protests have erupted across India in the most far-reaching challenge to the Modi government since it came to power in 2014. The state has responded with brutal and deadly force, and dozens have now died as a result of police violence aimed at protesters. That's more deaths than have been reported in Hong Kong, where the protest movement is in its seventh month. The government clampdown in India has also involved blocking mobile internet, banning large gatherings, and force has seemingly only added fuel to the protests. The spark for the protests across India was the passage of the Controversial Citizenship Amendment Act that was pushed through the legislature by Modi's BJP party, and it introduces discriminatory religious qualifications into citizenship laws, giving Indian citizenship to immigrants from Bangladesh, Pakistan, and Afghanistan, but not if they're Muslim. So the law is seen to deliberately discriminate against Muslim immigrants. Opposition parties say it unconstitutionally bases citizenship on religion, and that marginalizes the country's 200 million Muslims. So we've invited writer and social activist Achim Benayak to help explain all of this to us. He's participated in the protests in Delhi and has been writing about Indian politics for decades. He was a professor at the University of Delhi and Delhi-based fellow of the Transnational Institute in Amsterdam. He's the author of numerous books, including The Rise of Hindu Authoritarianism, Hindutva Rising, and The Painful Transition, Bourgeois Democracy in India. You can also find his work at Jacobin online and in the uh, journal and New Left Review. Now, the latest news that I just got is that the left parties on Thursday announced a seven-day nationwide protest from January 1st to the 7th and a general strike to begin on the 8th of January against the Citizenship Amendment Act and the uh, National Population Register and National Register of Citizens. That was signed by various left-wing parties, but also in solidarity with the trade unions. So that's the latest piece, and I want to welcome you, Achan Banayak, to Jacobin Radio. And maybe just ask you to begin by bringing our listeners up to speed on this rebellion and on Modi's policies that have led to it. Well, yes, you've correctly pointed out that this is the first time that there has been legislation that is based on religious discrimination linked to citizenship. And um, the danger of this is not only that this sets a precedence for future laws on the same principle, but that its connection with the National Register of Citizens is what is very dangerous. And then the data that is collected the uh, National Register of Citizens will then adjudicate as to who are doubtful citizens or non-citizens. They'll be mostly Muslims, because if they are Hindus, this uh, Citizenship Amendment Act will enable them to get fast-track naturalization by claiming that they are persecuted in, in Afghanistan and lost their documents and so on. And those who are judged not to be citizens, which will also include a lot of poor people who don't have documentary proof, will be sent to detention centers mm. because they can't really be expelled. And they will, of course, lose a whole host of rights, uh, right to vote, own property, uh, access to welfare service, sort of creating a pool of exploitable uh, labor. And uh, I should mention that uh, you mentioned that the left parties are organizing 
But what has given this such resonance is that this really has been initiated not by political parties, but by students and youth, and also by Muslims in largely Muslim localities. And this has given it a credibility. And of course, uh, the political parties have jumped in, and many of them are supporting this, which is fine. That's a great clarification. Could you talk then a little bit, maybe just quickly, you've mentioned it's students, youth, and Muslims, but these are presumably the social and political groups that are in the forefront of these uh, demonstrations. And and are there objectives to overturn these laws? Yes, well, the point is that it's not just social and political organizations. You've had a number of ordinary students, many of them coming into politics for the first time and coming in. And I think one has to understand that this is also related to the brutality and the assault that the Modi government has done on various universities since 2014 to promote privatization, to communalize the selection of teachers and the curriculum, and uh, including physical assaults on students and, of course, attacks on other student wings other than their own student wing. So this is a kind of pent-up anger. And uh, we should also remember that the trigger for these protests was the attack by police on two universities, one in Delhi and one in the state of Uttar Pradesh, the most populous state of India, against the universities inside the campuses on students peacefully protesting, going into libraries and hauling them up, beating them up, going into girls' hostels. So there's this pent-up frustration against the mistreatment of students, as well the recognition that we have an equality of citizenship rights. But you mentioned as well, I mean, in describing how they're going to carry out this register of citizenship, going house by house, and obviously not just discriminating against Muslims, but as you said, for those who don't have documents, and I'm, I don't know the situation, but I'm going to assume that a lot of people won't have documents. So this is incredibly extreme. Is the aim to make for Hinduized state domination as well as the destruction of the position and rights of Muslims, or as you say, it also encompasses, you know, the poor as well. How do you see the sort of aim of this? Okay, well, the one thing, of course, is that what what you said is quite right. It's there to terrorize and fearize and uh, ghettoize Muslims as much as possible, making them second-class citizens de facto, if you like. And uh, I've already mentioned the question of a, of a pool of, of, of cheap, portable labor. There's a third dimension, that this kind of data collection, the first time is much more invasive about the details, along with other legislation is being planned coming in the coming months, is going to create the basis for the government, various agencies of the government, to carry out spying. In other words, moving towards a surveillance state. Because if you're going to have a Hinduized state, you need to be able to control and threaten and recognize who are your enemies or potential enemies. So this is a very important aspect, which should not be missed. Well, I think the other side of it, too, of terrorizing the population, but does it also mean that for those who are, you know, found to be without documents, that they will then, you know, as you mentioned, they can't be deported if they're from India. But you mentioned detention. Is is that really how you see what they're going to be doing, is detaining or in some way restricting all the rights of a huge part of the population? Absolutely, if they're not citizens, right? And they can't really be expelled. 
uh, then they'll have their rights removed in various ways. Uh, even the detention camps would not be able to accommodate everybody. So it's guaranteed that they will remove detention, saying that, look, you're not citizens. How can you have the right to vote or own property or a permanent job or this, that? It's really quite incredible when you think about, you know, the, say what Trump is trying to carry out on our border or in Europe, what they're carrying out against refugees. This is far more extreme. Right. And it seems to me, you know, just off the bat, and we're going to go into the origin, origins of it, but something that yeah. seems more like uh, Myanmar. But let's go into the uh, sort of background of this. What maybe you could begin, Achin, with what had been the religious arrangement before Modi's moves to transform them? And was there more more of a balance then between the dominant Hindu majority and the Muslim minority in this overwhelmingly Hindu country? How were Muslims protected, you know, in the status quo ante? Well, the status quo ante was not something that was sympathetic or supportive of Muslims. The majority of Muslims come under the poorer sections of uh, Indian society. But at least you did not have this kind of uh, assault on them that you've now had since Modi government. And this is really the first time that Muslims have come out in such large numbers. And what is heartening is that they're not coming out in the name of Islam. Mm. They're coming out in the name of saying, look, we are Indians and we want equal citizenship. And this has also attracted a large number of, of people who recognize that this principle of equal citizenship and secularity connected to democracy is very, very important. And if momentum can carry on and we can get more and more strength, then what can happen is that the NRC may not be applied because this government needs the state government personnel to carry out the operation. And if there are a large number of non-BJP ruled states which refuse, at the moment only two have refused out of the 29, then the government is faced with a situation, does it back down or does it go ahead to apply emergency-like measures? to carry out what it was. But maybe we could get a larger sort of understanding of this, Achin, that Modi has been able to carry out this discriminatory policy because he won a majority, presumably, both in 2014 and then in the other elections in 2018, I think. So, and and I want to ask this as a question, how, you know, was the previous balance of forces broken so that both Modi and the religious right could come to power? And even with the demonstrations, as we're seeing today, and you're saying they're broad-based and not based on religion, is this sort of secularism and democracy, you know, sort of rearing its head and saying no to this? Or I guess maybe this begs the question, how were they able to forge, you know, their majority? I'm talking about Modi and the BJP. Well, let me put it this way. The, uh, the electoral dimension is one aspect of it. The great strength of the BJP and the other forces and the parent body called the RSS mm-hmm. Uh, and others, is that they have had a massive implantation in civil society. And this is what has given them great strength. And until the early 70s, the attitude of the parent body, the RSS, was that state power is corrupting. What we have to do is transform India by our work in civil society, which is also meeting secular needs, fighting on the battle of ideas, cadres promoting a particular understanding of Hindu nationalism, and so on. After the 70s, they began to realize the great importance of state power. And then one should also not forget that the real thing that really lifted the BJP and made it a national force 
was, of course, the greatest mass movement since the independence struggles, which was the Ram Janmabhoomi campaign, which lasted for years, uh, which directly targeted a mosque and therefore implicitly Muslims, and got across a particular message that we are the protectors of Hindus, this is basically a Hindu country, and so on. On the electoral front, what happened is that the National Party that enjoyed hegemony until the 60s after independence, the Congress Party, dramatically declined. Huh? Uh -huh. Why did it decline? Why did the vacuum get created? Because the Congress Party not only initiated neoliberalism, but it also had became ideologically rudderless. It uh -huh. does not have any distinctive ideology. It's faction-ridden, hence its uh, emphasis on the family to arbitrate. And the only way it attracts people and activists is if it comes to power and plays the politics of patronage. Besides which, it has shifted towards a kind of soft Hindutva. So today, you, this is the situation in which, of course, they were able to advance electorally, especially in North India. Can you just, for our listeners, very quickly define the hegemony of the Hindu forces? What does this mean in an India that, you know, is not just Hindu? Okay, very quickly, is that as far as their uh, economic policy is concerned, they're not different from most other parties. They're neoliberal, because they have to get the support of the ruling classes, which is why they abandoned their economic nationalism. What they're planning now, of course, is one, the Modi government is to eliminate or subordinate all other electoral comp competitors, terrorize and federize and, uh, and ghettoize Muslims, and also keep Christians in their place, which are a much smaller category. Yeah. Hollow out the nature of Indian democracy and its federalism. That means you don't eliminate elections, but you can still be a far-right force, and it is a far-right force, which is, if you like, supporting a whole host of, of democratic institutions from the Supreme Court to the uh, permanent bureaucracy to the election commission and so on. And fourth, very important pursue ideological homogenization by dominating and transforming the media and the education system. That's their plan. That's how they're moving. And their greatest strength lies outside of the electoral arena, but in civil society where they have the most passive implantation. In fact, if I could, yeah. could I just yes, uh, point please. out the difference between Duterte and uh, Bolsonaro. And yeah, I was going to ask that, but go right ahead. So, in other words, how does Modi differ from Duterte and, say, Erdogan, uh, two other far-right leaders with thuggish bases, you could say? In four crucial respects. There yeah. is no other far-right force anywhere in the world which has a continuous existence of over 90 years, number one. Number two, it has the most massive implantation in civil society. It has over 800 NGOs affiliated towards it, doing all kinds of work, including, you know, work providing help uh, in various ways when there's an earthquake and so on. Uh, uh, it has uh, 36 affiliates to it, including the largest student body and the largest in membership trade union federation. Right? It has uh, the largest private network of schools at the primary level. It has cadres in the millions. The membership of the BJP itself is supposed to be 180 million, which makes it bigger so, uh, than the Chinese Communist Party. Wow. And third aspect, of course, is that it has a very weak opposition. You see in Brazil and France and others, you have other significant 
electoral political parties, whether they are right-wing, conservative, social democratic. Here, the opposition is much, much, much weaker. Uh, and fourth, I want to point out that since 1947, this is the only political party that has never suffered a major split. Why is this? Because their fundamental ideology is a very simple and basic one. To build a strong India, you must recognize that this is a Hindu India, and that Hindu nationalism is the only way. On other grounds, like, for example, the economy, they have abandoned their economic nationalism and so on. And therefore, that's their central... And the nationalism, in many ways, is more powerful than the religious dimension. So one of the things that you write about in your New Left Review article, and I think in several other places, that one of the ways that, as you've just explained, Achim Vinayak, that, you know, Modi was able to come to power because of Hindu nationalism. And that the previous Congress party had ruled and over time had implemented or stood for the same neoliberal policies and ruling class domination as political elites had everywhere. And so they managed to, you know, not really meet the needs of the population. And you also said that the economic stressors of inequality, agrarian stress was not mentioned in, you know, in Modi's economic program in coming to power. He used fear instead, Islamophobia, fear of immigrants in order to distract people from that. But just now, as you were talking about the difference with Bolsonaro, Duterte and Erdogan, you know, once in power, they they continue to use neoliberal policies. Has it been different in India so far? Because Modi's been there since 2014. Is he using different policies or is, is everything subordinated to his plan of Hindu nationalism? No, well, the point is this thing is that if you want to keep the support of the ruling classes and manufacturers of the upper middle classes and all, he's going to continue pursuing neoliberalism, which he has. Mm-hmm. Now, this is a guarantee that there are going to be upsurges from below. Right. So there will be ruptures and upsurges below because the weak spot is the question of jobs, welfare, activities, lack of health, public health and public education, inadequacies, and also the caste factor. But guaranteed upsurges in the coming period and in the future, the open question is what direction will that take? And that depends upon living politics. So you can have in the West healthcare emphasis on outsiders causing problems and so on. So unless one is able to succeed in creating, my view actually, a, a newer left which is anti-neoliberal, which is not the case with most of the other opposition parties. That is a necessary condition, if not a sufficient one, for successfully fighting against. Uh, the, therefore, it's a very long-term struggle, even as we hope to defi- uh, you know, win out on this particular issue. Well, I wanted to ask just on that, given, you know, what you mentioned about the formerly dominant Congress party should also more or less discredit itself because it was a neoliberal as, say, the BJP. Did it also drop, you know, sort of the social welfare parts of its program? And is it, you know, considered an opposition party that's viable now? Or as you say, are there new forces coming in? Well, the simple thing is that whether it's the Congress or the BJP on the economic front, they sometimes have to respond to upsurges from below. Mm-hmm. So they pursue, if you like, what can be called a compensatory neoliberalism, right? They'll do this, they'll do that if their struggle is over here. Huh? But it's a neoliberalism nonetheless. I think that's very important. And uh, you know, with regard to your question of uh, what is the sort of direction this uh, Hindu nationalist force wants to take, which, of course, has many fascist characteristics, right. uh, think of Israel. 
India, the Modi government wants to be something like Israel, considered to be a democracy, the world's largest democracy, because there will be some civic rights for Hindus, obviously. There will be uh, elections more or less fair. But getting across that, that is, this is basically a Hindu country in which Hindus will have first-class rights. Uh, they are first-class citizens and Muslims and others. And also the question of monitoring and controlling uh, their potential opponents. I don't know if you know that there was a Pegasus, is an Israeli software company, which sold its software for spying to the Indian government. <laughs> and uh, they, they've used it against human rights activists and progressive lawyers and others. I'm really glad that you said this because, you know, as you described these citizenship laws and the re-registering of citizen, the thing that comes to mind are the Aryan laws. But it's not quite fascism, as you say. But the point that now that they think that they can have a sort of, what, religious state like Israel— and I guess the question really then is India is so much larger and the you know the Muslim population is also so much larger. And, the, and is it the case that, that it's a religious right or is it, you know, based on Hindu or is it straightforward nationalism? I think this is important to kind of understand. Well, the point is this thing is that uh, it's a Hindu nationalist, both Hindu uh, based upon a certain conception of Hinduism nationalism. All nationalism have a cultural dimension. Even civic nationalism has a certain cultural dimension and is better than ethnic nationalism. Mm -hmm. uh, but this is an ethnic nationalism. Uh, it's yeah. an essentialist nationalism, uh, right? And the reason why, why it has to be a nationalism is that nationalism provides something that even the religious dimension doesn't provide. And what I mean by that is that nationalism has two properties. One is the property of popular sovereignty. The nation, even if it's a dictatorship, is supposed to be for the people. So even a Pakistani dictatorship will say, I'm not doing this for my family, I'm doing this for the people of Pakistan. Huh? Mm -hmm. The second principle, which everybody is equally, as, as is the case of... Now, these are two powerful dimensions of nationalism, which means that religious fundamentalists and religious communal movements very rarely try to oppose nationalism. They try to co-opt nationalism. Right. So you'll see within Islamic states, apart from this uh, caliphate, which is not working, you'll find that Islamic nationalism is everywhere in different forms. We really only have about a minute left. It goes so quickly. But I just wanted to sort of end asking you, you know, you were in your article on like the catastrophe about the election and the rise of Modi. You were pretty pessimistic about the possibilities of any kind of effective to these policies, to the Hindutva. But now we see this massive, you know, set of protests and now perhaps a general strike. So do you have, has anything happened to make you have a, a different outlook and how do you see, you know, any forces mobilized to stop this very far-right advance? Well, you said now is have given us some optimism, but the longer-term struggle is still that, and this is, of course, enhanced to a certain extent by this, if there's greater dissolution with the Modi government, it makes the prospect of building a newer kind of left which is anti-neoliberal and which is progressive, and in fact will also have to be anti-capitalist. Yeah. It becomes that much stronger. But let's not fool ourselves that there is not a longer-term hegemony. But what is heartwarming is that for the first time, there is a serious setback on the public mass level at the, in the consciousness of people that, look, this is a government that is anti-democratic and we have to watch out. 
And this is something that we can certainly build on. But it is a long-term struggle. Just like it is, in, I think, in Erdogan, was, uh, you know, Brazil and, uh, and elsewhere. Thank you for ending with that note, Achim Vinayak, and certainly something that we're going to continue to watch from here. And I'm so glad that you were able to speak with us here today on Jacobin Radio. My guest has been Achim Vinayak, and he's participated in these protests in Delhi. We're speaking to him in Delhi, and he's been writing about Indian politics for decades. You can look him up on Google to get some of his books. But he was also a university professor. And I'll just mention one book, The Rise of Hindu Authoritarianism. And you can also find his work in Jacobin and New Left Review. Thanks so much for joining us today with that really comprehensive look in what such a short amount of time. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. And I'm Susie Wiseman. Don't go away. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Susie Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio. Thanks to producer and director Alan Minsky and to Jacobin Radio's Micah Utrecht. Bhaskar Sunkara is the founder and editor of Jacobin Magazine. And special thanks to Robert Brenner. And thanks to you for listening. I'm Susie Wiseman.